Um, I, uh, I listened to the sermon online last week. I wasn't able to be here, but I listened to the sermon online. And uh, how many of you made some trips to the thrift store to get rid of stuff last week? Anybody? Just, uh, just Jordan and I. Okay. All right. Well, at least oh, three of us. Very good. Three of us. You remember the story Jordan uh, sold his, uh, his blazers that he bought for an exorbitant amount of money? I, when I heard the figure, I was like, whoa, unbelievable. No wonder, uh, no wonder his wife wasn't super pleased with that. But uh, he, he dropped him off at Savers here in Woodbury. So if anybody's in the market for a nice blazer cheap, just uh, head on down there. Um, we're, we're still in our, our James series, and I don't know if it's been as good for you as it has for me, but it has been fantastic to really dig, dig deep into the book of James and just, just really try to figure out what this, this book is, is speaking to us. I mean, we know it was written to an audience. We know it was written to people who are going through just an incredibly difficult situation, but it's got a lot for us, and so it's been incredibly helpful to think through each step of the way. And so we got this week and then next week, and we'll wrap up this kind of short series that we've been in, James, and, and I think we're going to tackle some more in the future, but if, uh, if you've enjoyed it, then great. If you haven't, well... I don't even know what to say. How many of you ever heard this phrase? <clears throat> Be sure your sins will find you out. How many of you ever heard that phrase? I have it on the screen somewhere if you want to go to the next slide for me, unless you're having, having problems. There you go. You've heard it, right? right? Raise your hands again. I want to see. I wasn't paying attention. Be sure your sins will find it out. Now, how many of you have heard that in the context of you being a teenager and you're about to go out the door and your mom was like, Be sure your sins will find you out. All right, also just me. Great, okay. Well, I'm glad I'm preaching this sermon today. I guess it's basically for me. But um, I, I've, anybody happen to know where this verse is found in the Bible? Anybody? Yeah, I, I, that's what I kind of thought too, because I had no idea. I had to look it up. It's in the book of Numbers, and there's a whole context that it actually belongs to. But I had always heard it in the context of like, you know, if you got some like secret, deep, dark, hidden sin, you know, if you like told your mom you were going to point A, but you also went to point B on the way to point A, be sure your sins will find you out. And I suppose that's true. I mean, that, it's a pretty, like, it's a pretty heavy-duty verse when you think of uh, the idea of like God knowing everything. It's like this eye of Sauron kind of mentality that God is everywhere and he's watching you. But it is a great verse to, to keep people on their toes a little bit. Um, and, and in the broader culture, like, it's got some application, too. It's not just in the church world that we hear this verse. You know, when a politician gets caught in a, a scandal, somebody will say something like this. Well, his sins caught up with him. His sins found him out. Um, and, and I think this verse is typically used for people, to get people to take sin seriously. That's, that's how you think of it. Because, like, when, when, you're, when you're doing something, like, we all know that we can kind of pretend to make sure that everything seems okay on the outside. But, but we know that there's stuff on the inside, right? And so we've heard this verse in that context. Like, all that deep, dark stuff is going gonna, is gonna to find us out. It's, it's, it's in the—the the idea is, in the midst of temptation, if you've got, like, this choice and you can be, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right, wrong thing, and you're kind of trying to dis- decide between the two, and you're rationalizing the sin, you know, nobody's going to notice, it's not going to hurt it anybody. I could get away with it. I can manage it. All that stuff, right? And then verses like this, maybe not this one, but verses like this come floating down into your brain if you've grown up in church. You know what I mean? And you're like, I really want to do this thing, but be sure your sins will find you out. Like, I'm going to get caught. It's something bad's going to happen. So in the midst of temptation, verses like this and other verses in the Bible kind of like help us lean, at least lean away 
from temptation or lean toward doing the right thing, whether or not we actually ever do it. But verses like this kind of come into our brains. You've had that happen, right? Kind of in the middle of something, you're trying to decide, are you going to be bad? Are you going to be good? Are you going to listen to the devil? Are you going to listen to the angel? Whatever, you know, that whole like scenario. And then a Bible verse pops into your head. You know what I'm talking about? Um, my mother is not in the audience this morning, which is good because I'm going to tell a story about her. And uh, she's not here to dispute me. But I remember the first time I used the phrase, the devil made me do it. And I, I, I wish I could not have to say the first time, like as if there's been multiple uses. But I've used that phrase, the devil made me do it. Uh, and it was in this context. I was, my, <laughs> I have been to a lot of garage sales growing up. That is my mom's love language. Amen. Garage sales. Like, that is her favorite thing to do. That is her number one hobby. And she's not here. Like, you can't ask her. Normally, she's sitting right here in the first three rows, and she'd be getting even redder than she normally is, right? She's not here. But that is true. That is true. So, my growing up, like, Saturday mornings, you could, like, you could either watch Saturday morning cartoons or you could go to garage sales. And sometimes I would want to watch Saturday morning cartoons, but I would have to go garage sailing because I wasn't old enough to be by myself. So we're garage sailing, and I would usually go to one or two, and I would find, like, an old comic book. And then for the rest of the morning, I would just sit in the car waiting for my mom to go check out the junk in the driveway and then come back up to the car. So I'm sitting there reading Archie or whatever. I mean, whatever. You know, you remember those. Still around, evidently. And, uh, and my mom is down garage selling, and this one occasion, we're kind of, kind of in front of the driveway a little bit, and I'm sitting in the front seat, because this is back in the 80s when we didn't care about child safety. We just let them do whatever. We're still around. I don't know how that worked, but we're, I'm sitting in the driver's seat, or passenger seat, rather, and uh, my mom comes up to the car to the window, and she goes, Patrick, I am buying something for your birthday, and I don't want you to look down the driveway when I'm bringing it back. Now, a couple things. Let me address this one. First of all, some of you are like, a birthday gift at a garage sale? Absolutely. Like, let some other brat get, the, let their parents spend a hundred bucks on whatever it is, and then three weeks later, when they're bored of it, you can buy it at a garage sale for five dollars. I mean, it's genius. Why would you ever buy the new thing, right? So my mom found this thing, and I was trying to remember what it was, and I think, I think it was like a robot that you could like push buttons and it would do stuff. I was, I was pretty young, I hope, <laughs> and it had like it had this like cassette player thing, and it was just, I, I mean, it was cool. But anyway, so my mom, I'm sitting in the driver's seat, passenger seat. Why do I keep saying driver's seat? Sitting in the passenger seat. My mom comes up, Patrick, don't look down the driveway. I'm going to buy something for your birthday. I don't want you to see what it is. Now, I had been busy reading my Archie comic book, hadn't given another thought. I don't care what's going on at the garage sale, except for the fact now my mom has told me not to look. So I'm facing forward, garage sale's this way, and all of a sudden, the only thing in the world that I want to do is look down the driveway. The only thing. I mean, you could offer me a million dollars, and I would still rather look down the driveway. So I'm sitting there like, don't look down the driveway. Don't look down the driveway. I'm looking straight ahead. I'm trying to use my peripheral vision like, don't look, don't turn. And so uh, my, my mom's doing whatever, finishing the transaction. And I'm like, I'll just glance real quickly. Just real quick. She won't ever see it. She won't ever see me looking down. And I'm thinking, you know, part of me is saying, like, you don't want to look down the driveway. You don't want to know what you're getting for your birthday. That's part of the, the surprise. And the other part of me is saying, like, no, 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 no. You want to know, because what if it's a terrible, lame gift, and you have to pretend to enjoy it or whatever? I mean, there's all this, you know, that devil 
angel thing on each shoulder, right? I'm sure that's not all that complex, uh, that complexity of thought going through my mind, but I'm sitting there, and I'm looking straight forward, and I remember this so vividly because I, I, this was the first time I sinned, so I think. Maybe. <laughs> not really. I just remember this very vividly. So I'm like, just look, good, just glance real quickly, real quickly, and then look back. She'll never notice. You'll see what you're getting. Everything will be fine. It won't matter. You won't get caught. It's fine. Do it, do it, do it, do it. So finally, I'm just like, you know, you can imagine this little, like, I don't know, eight-year-old. I don't know what I was. So I'm like, turn over real quick, and I'm going to turn back, except for the fact that my mom is like 10 feet away, and she is making direct (laughs) eye contact with me. You know that story of Peter denying Christ the third time, and Jesus turns and looks at him right in the eye, that's how I felt. Like, there's my mom. And, and you know, right, parents, kids, you know this too, right? Parents, when they get mad, that's one thing. You're like, they're mad at me, whatever. But when parents get disappointed, my mom takes the robot and she puts it in the trunk and she gets in the driver's side and she, you know, all quiet, doesn't say anything, sits down, puts on her seatbelt. Probably not. It's the 80s. You didn't wear seatbelts. Whatever. She looks over at me and she goes, Patrick, why did you disobey me? <laughs> Passenger seat, Patrick. The devil made me do it. <laughs> it was the devil. It was the devil's fault. It wasn't me. It was the devil. And I've, I've thought about this idea quite a bit, because, especially because I'm, I'm preaching a sermon about it. But this idea of like when, when, when there's this, this transaction of, of, of fault, like something is done wrong, there, there's this thing that's created in that moment. Like I had disobeyed. I had to, you know, to put it strongly, I had sinned. And then to cover up that sin... I lied. The devil did not make me do it. Now, some of you are like, well, Satan is real and he manipulates. I get all that. I'm not, I'm not even talking about that. I did not need the devil to make me do the wrong thing. I had that covered all on my own. I was perfectly capable. The devil had very little to do with it. I mean, maybe there was a devil on my shoulder. I don't know. But it wasn't the devil's fault. It was all Patrick's fault. So when I told my mom that I, I sinned, and then when I tried to cover it up by like, placing the blame somewhere else by, by essentially lying, by sinning again. And I think that tells us something about the nature of sin. Like, it's not just one thing, and then you can retreat real quickly. It just always draws you in. But, but that's not the point this morning. It was, it was just all me. Once I had messed up, messed up, I had created this thing. And when we all do, when we sin, we create this thing. This thing comes into existence that did not exist before we sinned. Whatever that thing is, whatever that problem is, we create something as, as, almost as if it's tangible. And, and you could call it guilt, you could, but it's something. It's something that you don't want to deal with. So I want you to imagine that when we mess up, we actually create some sort of tangible physical, in-the-world sort of object, as if this thing is created now. I have messed up, and now there comes into existence this thing, and I have to figure out what to do with it. So I looked. I shouldn't have looked. My mom asked me why I looked. I had created this thing. I didn't know what to do with it, so I was like, I do not want this. Satan, here, you take it. I don't want this. I don't want this guilt. I don't want this blame. I made this uh, Custom made this shirt for you just to kind of give us an illustration of what, what I'm talking about. Shirt that says blame. 
right? Can everybody read that? Blame? It's as big as I could get it. Sorry, guys. I'm not a very good t-shirt maker. I had created this, this guilt, this, this something in the world, and I did not want it, so I said, the devil made me do it. Here, Satan, you wear this shirt. I don't want any part of it. I don't want it. And I, I think we need to talk about this idea today. We need to talk about this idea of what we do when we create blame and sin and problems. Because our instinct, no matter who we are, our instinct is to always give the blame to something or someone else. Always. No matter who we are. It's always our instinct. Now, I'm not saying you haven't grown up and become sophisticated enough not to do that, but I'm saying that is your instinct. When something bad happens and you don't want to accept the you want to give it to someone or something else. You want someone or something else to wear the blame for you. You don't want it. And I get that, right? None of us want it. None of us are interested in that blame. I got in the appropriate amount of trouble when I got home. I don't know if you in this room believe in corporal punishment or not, but my mother did. And I got a dose of corporal punishment when I got home. And fortunately for me, that was the last time I ever sinned in my life. couple things. One, I'm making an assumption that we all in this room care about sin. We're at church, so I'm assuming that we care about Jesus. We know what Jesus did, so I'm assuming we care about sin, even sin in our own lives. Obviously, we care much more about sin in other people's lives, but that's something we got to work on. But I'm making an assumption that we care about sin. Um, Because, of course, one way to never ever struggle with temptation is just to never tell yourself no. You're, you, maybe in, you're in this room thinking, I never have a problem with temptation. Well, maybe it's because you never tell yourself no. That's a one way to deal with temptation. Just always give in. But I have to believe that for us in this room, some more sophisticated version of little Patrick sitting in the passenger seat of the car, trying not to look, exists in all of us. And I have to, maybe it's not like that stark, but I have to imagine that for all of us, maybe regularly, there's this moment where we're trying to decide, are we going to do good or are we going to do bad? And it's never that clear, right? It's never like obviously good and obviously bad, but there's this moment where we're trying to decide, am I going to give into this thing that I don't think I should do, that I have these, these doubts about, or am I going to go ahead and do what I think I should do, or what my parents are trying to tell me to do, or whatever it is. I mean, maybe not so much for you guys, but maybe for those guys. So we all have that a little bit. Secondly, so number one, I'm assuming we care about sin. Secondly, I believe that for most of us, the most popular way to handle blame when we do the wrong thing is some version of the devil made me do it. I don't think you say the devil made me do it. I don't think you tell your spouse when you get in an argument and you just take it too far. I don't think you say to your spouse, I'm sorry, honey, the devil made me do it. That wouldn't work in your setting. But I think that we have some version of that. There's always like somebody, something else that we want to wear that shirt. We want that somebody else to, to, to wear the burden, wear the blame of that. Our instinct is to always give the blame to something or someone else. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you take your Bibles and turn over there. James chapter 1. We have been in this deep, deep dive of the first half of the first chapter of the book of James. And I think it's been fascinating. It's been so helpful to me. Uh, Jordan talked last week about like wealth just being this thing that, that overwhelms us. It was, was very helpful. I went into my closet and I was like, I got to get rid of a bunch of stuff. By the way, um, so Jordan gave away those blazers. He said he gave away. I don't know if this is true. You have to confirm this. Or maybe you should ask God. Uh, Lindsay, he said he gave away 60% of his clothes last week. 
Is that right? Does that seem right? Lindsay, do you think that's right? She has no clue. Uh, I think Jordan's lying. Oh, where is Jordan? Is he in here? He's gone. Jordan. He knew I was going to call him out. All right. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should take this and say, oh, God, this is your fault. Here, God, you wear this shirt. You wear this. No one should do that, right? And most of us would be like, I've never done anything quite like that, but, but hang on there. No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But we desperately, remember, we don't want to wear this shirt. We have to find somebody else to wear it. I took uh, Liam, my youngest child, who is four years old, to Taco Bell. And those of you that have children, you understand that, you know, you know the, the, the miracle, Jesus' miracle, the five loaves of the two fish and how it produced much more, right? You know that that's not that miraculous, right? Because you've given your kid like a finite amount of food and then somehow like many, many, many times that ends up all over the floor around them, right? You give them two chicken nuggets and they have like a tornado disaster at their feet. And so we're at Taco Bell. I am giving, I gave my son a taco and most of the taco is in this just like huge multi-car pileup of a mess at the bottom of his seat. We're the only people in the Taco Bell, which is not a good sign of a restaurant. But anyway, we're the only people in there. And there's this one employee who's just sweeping the floor. It's just me and Liam and this employee sweeping the floor. So we're over in the corner and the employee just keeps making their way over. That, all they want to do is sweep Liam's mess. That's the only mess in there. And so they keep pretending to sweep other stuff, but getting closer and closer and closer to us. And we're just sitting there, and this guy, I know he's coming for us. I know that's all he wants to do is sweep our mess. So he gets closer and closer and closer. And finally, he is literally sweeping under our table while we're eating. I guess he's, you know, bored, works, I don't know, works at Taco Bell, so I guess he's bored. And Liam is sitting there in his chair, and he sees the worker sweeping the mess, and he looks down at the mess, and then he looks at me, and this is what he says. I did not make this up. This is what he says. He looks at me, and he says, Dad! You made a huge mess. <laughs> now, now, Liam realized there was some blame that if he did not do something, was going to, be, was going to fall on him. So Liam was like, here, Dad, you wear the blame. Now, I'm pretty sure Liam knew for, for certain that that mess was not his dad's. But he looked up and looked at me and said loudly enough for this guy to like pay attention, Dad. You made a huge mess. And I wanted to, I was a little shocked. I was like, where did that come? I'm not even eating a taco, buddy. Like, uh, well, where did that come from? But he had this blame. He had this problem to deal with. And he wanted, to, he wanted it to be somebody else's fault. Now, that's a small version of something that I think we probably deal with on a much larger scale for all of us. We want circumstances to be beyond our control when we mess up. So that it's not our fault. It's not our blame. It's not our guilt. I couldn't help it work stress, my boss. I just couldn't help the fact that I did that because things have been a little overwhelming lately. My spouse, they made me so mad. Really, I mean, I may have said it, but really, it's their fault. I did it, but it's their problem. My kids, man, you wouldn't believe. Or maybe my childhood. My parents never. My parents always. And we want to take this blame. We want to take this problem and we want to give it to somebody else. We want someone else to wear it instead of us. Dad, you made the taco mess. This is your problem. This is your blame. And aren't most like apologies, really? Non-apologies, I guess. 
accompanied by some explanation. It's not just an apology. It's not just like, you know what? I'm sorry. That was terrible. I should not have done that. It's always, I'm sorry, I've been really stressed. I'm sorry, but I was really tired. I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have. I'm sorry, or the worst apologies try to shift the blame to the person being apologized. I'm sorry that you were offended by my racist comments. Like, oh, wait a second. That is some, that is some psychological problems that you got there. I'm sorry that you got upset at the mean thing that I did. That's ridiculous. But, but a lot of apologies are accompanied by some sort of blame somewhere, someone else. But not us, not us. But I want you to think about this. When we take our bad decisions, our temptations, our problems, our situation, and we try to give the blame to someone or something else, we are actually using God as a rationalization for our sin. When we are saying, my circumstances made my choice beyond my control, I should not have to accept the blame, we are saying, Ultimately, whether or not we say, God, you tempted me, we are saying, God, you allowed me to be in circumstances that, that were beyond my control, and therefore I had to do this thing. When we give in to temptation and we blame other people, other situations, we are ultimately blaming God. Hey, Dad, uh, if you hadn't bought me that taco, we wouldn't have this mess on the floor now, would we? So ultimately, Dad, isn't it your fault? If, if you, honey, hadn't been so difficult to be around, I wouldn't have lost my patience. So ultimately, isn't it your fault? If you, God, hadn't put me in this situation where I wasn't able to do the right thing, then I wouldn't have done the wrong thing. So ultimately, God, this belongs to you. It does not belong to me. I don't want to wear this. This belongs to you, God. When we try to give the blame away, we are ultimately giving blame to God. When we're talking about our own choices, our own decisions, when we try to give it away, we're ultimately blaming God from the very, very beginning. Hey, Adam, why did you eat that? Why? Uh, well, God, that woman. That, in fact, God, not just that woman, that woman that you gave me. God, this is all your fault. God, the blame, the blame goes right on you. From the very beginning, we've been doing that. We're not much better now. If you hadn't let me marry him or her, if you hadn't let me take that job, if you hadn't let me move there, if you hadn't bought me that taco. James wants to make it very, very, very clear. This is not a game that God is interested in playing. And James says, let me go ahead and stop you right there. There's people trying to rationalize their temptation, their sin, by saying, maybe this is God. God put me in this situation. And James saying, nope, 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 nope. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. Now listen, this is very important. I am not saying that our circumstances don't make doing the right thing difficult. I'm not saying that our circumstances don't make doing the right thing difficult. You may be in a tough situation, you may have a tough marriage. You may have a tough life. You may have a tough job. I'm not at all saying that your circumstances don't make doing the right thing difficulty, but difficult. But listen, 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 this is so important. Difficulty is not an adequate excuse for sin. Difficulty is not an adequate excuse for sin. But God, it's difficult. Here, you take the blame. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Difficulty 
doesn't let you off the hook. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but difficulty doesn't let you off the hook. James has um, another message instead. Joni uh, Erickson Tata is this uh, Christian author. A lot of you have heard her. She was real big, like 80s, 90s. A lot of you have heard her, most of you. She was uh, injured in a um, swimming accident when she was 18 years old, paralyzed from the neck down. And so she's a lot of time to think and contemplate and do things. She's very, very accomplished. Paints, all kinds of stuff. Paralyzed paints, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't do nearly as much stuff, and I have lots more uh, opportunities. But um, she wrote uh, about this, about this swimming accident, or she wrote about this situation, about feeling this way that, that maybe difficulty is, is the problem, that, that difficulty gives me excuse for sin. And she, this is her quote. She says, didn't my wheelchair, this is her thinking, didn't my wheelchair entitle me to a little slack now and then, morally speaking? Didn't my wheelchair entitle me to a little slack now and then? When God allows you to suffer, do you have a tendency to use your very trials as an excuse for sinning? Do you feel like since you've given God a little extra lately by taking such abuse that he owes you a day off? God, it has been really hard. God, you don't understand. God, really, if you hadn't, if you didn't, God, really, the blame belongs to you. And God's saying, no one should say that God is tempting me. Now, let me say this. This is going to be a little maybe controversial for you. When it comes to sin... We like to think that we have a marriage problem, or a work problem, or a parenting problem, or a relationship problem. But ultimately what we have is a you problem. That's the problem. Ultimately, we have an us problem. We want to say it's these other things, but that's a temptation to lay the blame for our bad decisions at someone else's feet. You don't know my boss. You don't know my husband. You don't know my situation. I'm sure it's difficult. But difficulty is not an adequate excuse for sin. James says this, James 1.14. This is each person. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. And God says this blame, this guilt, this problem that you want to lay at somebody else's feet, he says, guess what? Shirt fits you pretty well. Not literally, I guess it's pretty big, but... By the way, if anybody needs a shirt that says blame on it, maybe work out, I don't know. James says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away. Yeah, dragged away, I was dragged away by their own evil desire. Oh, that's not quite as fun, God. Here's the truth. I don't need the devil to make me do it. There's not a theology about Satan and how he works, but I don't need that. I am more than capable of getting in trouble completely on my own. I don't need to blame the devil. I don't need to blame anyone else. I don't need to blame my spouse, my kids, my job, my work, my stress. I don't need to blame any of those things. That's not the problem. I don't need to blame God. I am more than capable of getting in trouble on my own, James says. And then he says, dragged away. Kind of this violent imagery that I think is kind of interesting to think about. Any of you have a friend growing up that was always getting you in trouble? Some of you are like, mm, oh, you were that friend then for someone else. That's probably, <laughs> that's probably why you're at church here today. But you know, the one your parents were like, I don't really want you going over to their house. We're going to be fine. We're just going to. And your parents were like, I don't think so. I think they're going to do something. They just had this intuition about something coming up, something happening. Something was going to happen. 
Uh, most of you know that uh, I grew up, uh, at least a portion of my childhood, teenage years, in Taiwan. My parents were missionaries. And uh, you can ask them about this too. Uh, but over there, in, in every city, everywhere you go, they have these things called barber shops. Now, you're like, we have those here too. But they weren't barber shops, air quotes, barber shops. And they had a little barbershop pole outside of them. And they had, you know, usually the doors were kind of open and you could see in. And inside it was very dimly lit. And there were maybe one or two, like, like look like regular haircutting type chairs. There wasn't much in the way of actual haircutting going on. Because what they were is they were like this very, everybody knew it. They were a very thinly veiled front for, for brothels. And so there were these barber shops, very dimly lit, you know, red lights and stuff like that. But they had the pole and everything, and that's how they operated. Oh, technically we're a barber shop, but if you win, and you weren't going to get your hair cut. And they would have guys, always guys, I don't know why, always guys outside the barber shops trying to drum up business. Come on in, come on in, come on in. And sometimes these guys would get really aggressive. And on more than one occasion, like, they would actually, like, physically grab you and try to drag you into these places. And here I am, like, I, I lived there from ages 11 to 17. And on multiple occasions, like, throughout that time, I, I had people try to drag me into these places. Like, what was going to happen? Like, you get dragged in and you're like, well, now that I'm here, I guess I'll go ahead and, you know, do... Well, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking exactly. And so many occasions, like, I had to, like, pull my way away from these guys, trying to trying to get away from them. And, and that imagery that, that James uses is being dragged. But he, but he says the problem is the guy dragging you in there is you. It's not some guy standing outside of a barber shop. It's not some friend that's a bad influence getting you in trouble. It's, it's you. Jordan was talking about timeshares last week and what a bad idea they are. <laughs> they had a terrible idea. And some of you have heard horror stories. A friend of ours went to a timeshare appointment. And if you don't know what timeshares are, I got a timeshare I can sell you. No, I don't really. Um, but they went into this timeshare appointment, and uh, they tried to leave. Like, the people took, hey, can we get your driver's license? We just need to copy it. They took, like, and maybe it was a passport. They took it away so these people could not leave, like, without that, without getting that thing back. And this is true. At one point, the wife was in tears. Just let us go. Like, like it's a kidnapping. And by the time they left that encounter, they had purchased a timeshare. It's crazy. And, and you know, we're like, oh, it's awful, it's awful, it's manipulative, it's terrible. You know what? You are the timeshare salesman trying to sell yourself the timeshare. You are the one being dragged away by your own, their own evil desires. Okay, okay, Patrick, you made your point, you made your point. I'll think about accepting a little bit more responsibility for my occasional mistakes. Here's the danger, and here's where I really want to get to in trying to get somebody else to wear this shirt. Here's the danger, right? Because some of you are like, oh, okay, sometimes I do that, I guess. But here's the danger. Here's, a, this is, here's why this is critical when we try to say, here, honey, you wear this. Here, job, you wear this. Here, whoever, you wear this. Or, or here, sometimes we get this, the church is the problem for my mistakes, right? Have you ever had that happen? Some of you who have been in the ministry have had people say, you know, I'm just not getting spiritually fed there. And wait a second, you're, you're starting to lay the blame for your lack of spirituality at the feet of the church. You know how mental that is? Amen. It's ridiculous. Just be careful. I, I, you hear that uh, in your ministry. Those of you that have been ministers have heard that throughout the years. You're just like, ah, wait, what, huh? Sometimes we get the church to try to wear the shirt. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. If we don't own, if we don't wear the blame. I was thinking about putting this on and then I realized there's just no feasible way. But if we don't wear the blame... If we don't own the blame, then we do not require forgiveness. 
If we don't own the blame, then we don't require forgiveness. What we require is a change of circumstances. We don't require forgiveness. We require someone to come in and fix our situation. We don't, and this is so important. Because if, if instead of going to God and saying, God, will you please forgive me of what I've done? We'll just say, God, will you please fix my spouse? God, will you please fix my job? God, will you please fix my situation? Instead of asking Jesus to change us, to become more like him, we're just going to ask him to change other people. We don't need to be changed because the blame isn't ours. Other people need to be changed. Instead of repentance, we're just going to sweep stuff under the rug. And if we try to deal with our sin problem without dealing with our sin, nothing will ever change. But I got some good news. If we are willing to, if we are willing to wear the blame for our bad choices and our mistakes, if we're willing to wear this, if we're willing to accept this, then, then guess what? Jesus can take it away. But he can't take it away until we're willing to wear it. He can't take it away until we're willing to own it. But if we are, then he can take it away. And here's the really good news. Not only does he take it away, he doesn't just say, let me handle that for you. He takes it over to like the fire pit, the garbage disposal. He, you know, blows it up with some TNT. This thing's gone. This thing's burned. This thing's never to be seen again. Because God tells us that not only does Jesus forgive our sins, but that Jesus breaks the power of sin in our lives. That this issue, this struggle, doesn't have to be the struggle that it once was. I'm not saying we don't make choices and there aren't hard situations, but I'm saying it'll be a lot easier to lean toward the right. Because Jesus breaks the power of sin in our lives. That's really good news. He doesn't just take it away from us. He burns it up and it's gone. That's good news. That's the gospel message. That Jesus came to earth not just to, to forgive us of the bad choices that we've made, but to break the power of sin in our lives so that we don't have to keep blaming other people for our sins and our problems. Because it's gone. And we now can, we're free we're free to make better choices. We're free to make better decisions. And now when some, we, we do something wrong, we can totally own it because we know that God forgives it through Christ. Man, that is good news. I want to read uh, one last verse. I, just, I have to read what Paul says about this topic, a familiar passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. But he says this. Listen, this is so good. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that this body that was ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That sounds pretty good to me. That sounds like something that I want to live, something that I want to experience, but I'm never going to live that. I'm never going to experience that if I'm always trying to point the finger somewhere else. Man. I want to read um, our, our passage this morning, just in its entirety, James 1, 13 through 15. But just to remind us of what James is telling us. These are people that he's writing to that are in a difficult situation. As Jordan pointed out last week, they're in an economic crisis. And it is very tempting in that moment to say, you know, I'll just do this bad thing and it will relieve me of this pressure and it'll be done and it'll be okay and it'll be over. And, and James is saying, do not point that finger at God. 
Do not think that because of your difficult situation, it gives you a reason to do something that you should not do. This is what James says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He doesn't play that game. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And, and this is something we just can't get into. But this blame, this shifting of blame to someone else, it makes us not deal with this real sin problem. And the sin problem is going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger until it's completely out of control, is what James is telling us. But like Romans says, Romans 6, 6, Praise be to God that he has set us free from the power of sin and death. Praise be to God. That's good news. That's good news. So, let's come to terms with the fact that the problem is ours. Let's come to terms with the fact that this, this blame, this sin, that is our problem. Then, let's come to terms with the fact that God sent a Savior to deal with it, to take it away, and to break it.